I'm your host, Jeffrey, and you're listening to Gaijin. Hey, Hot Mess Heroes. On today's show, we have Matt Ortile, the author of The Groom Will Keep His Name, a memoir about his life as a gay Filipino immigrant. We talk about relationships, race, and identity, and he also breaks down the difference between a rice queen and a dairy queen. I had a ton of fun talking to Matt, and you don't want to miss this one. I think this might be the best episode of Gaijin yet. Make sure you're subscribed to Gaijin on Spotify for more of these conversations. All right, let's get into today's show. Hey, Hot Mess Heroes, it's been a while. Before we get into today's interview, I have a couple of updates. So much has changed in my life over the past few weeks, but I want to share this news with all of you because it comes up in my interview with Matt. And some of you may also be dealing with grief or loss at this time. I'm actually in Southern California with my family right now. And unfortunately, we lost my grandmother to COVID. Been rough, but overall I'm doing okay. I love spending time with my family and I'm happy I just get to be here to celebrate the life of my wonderful, loving grandmother. In my conversation with Matt, we talk about dealing with grief as this is something he's also processing with the passing of his mother. He wrote a beautiful essay about his mom and he shared some wisdom with me that I will definitely cherish during this time. Not only is he an incredible writer, but he's also just overall an awesome human being. Where do you prefer people go to purchase the, the memoir? For sure. People can purchase The Groom Will Keep His Name at any independent bookstore they know locally. To support yes. your local independent bookstores, you can go to bookshop.org, which part of their proceeds go to help support independent bookstores around the country. And you can read my work currently. I have a column at catapult.co. That's Catapult Magazine. It's an online magazine. And full disclaimer, I also work there full time as an editor. And so I have a column there currently. And I am a regular contributor to ContéNastTraveler.com. The Groom Will Keep His Name and Other Vows I've Made About Race, Resistance, and Romance is Matt Ortile's memoir, your memoir. Um, it's a collection of essays about sex, power, and the myths of American society. Um, I inhaled the book uh, this past summer while lying on a beach in P-Town, um, and I was annotating every single word and sentence that rang true in my life um, as a gay Filipino man. Uh, so I basically underlined uh, the entire thing. Um, but Matt, uh, you weave stories together about your life as a Filipino who immigrated to the United States at a young age, and you seamlessly bring readers into the intersections of race, sexuality, and identity. Um, the essays are ambitious and incredibly sharp as you very brilliantly connect cultural analysis and self-examination. And the result is an exegesis. Yes, I, I just used that word. Uh, but it's a critical interpretation of the historical, political, and social factors that continue to shape your life. And um, what I walked away with was an honest and moving account of a young queer Filipino man's understanding of himself and his own lived experience. And I'm so grateful for this book. I'm going to do my best not to make this a gush session. <laughs> um, but given that, 
the thing that all the listeners want to know. And my most burning question um, is uh, what's a rice queen and what's a dairy queen? So, well, first of all, thank you so much for your kind words. Um, it's so refreshing after, I guess, the book came out on June 2. So it's now almost nine months, actually, right about nine months since the book came out. And it's I really still so appreciate whenever anyone shares how much they enjoyed reading the book because it's such a... Uh, such a bomb, I think, in a time that's so stressful for everybody mm. to, I, I feel really seen and heard when people tell me they felt really seen and heard uh, mm. when they read the book. So, so a, a rice queen is someone very often a gay white man, a queer white man who only goes for Asian men uh, in romance and in sex very often it is something that they are unconscious of or something that's operating in their own subconscious, perhaps maybe to a fetishistic degree. Mm. One story that I tell in the book is that at one point I was on a date with a man who I very belatedly realized was a rice queen. And some of the hints had been that, you know, they wanted to go to, they've always wanted to go to Manila or Bangkok or anywhere in the South, in Southeast Asia really. And I was like, Oh, I, I am, someone is trying to use me for their sexual tourism. Mm. And so very often a rice queen is someone who fetishizes Asian men. And for whatever reason, very often it's this kind of internalized idea, maybe that an Asian man is going to be their, their submissive bottom or maybe their power bottom or, Mm-hmm. someone that will fulfill a particular sexual fantasy. And if these are fantasies that you want to play with, please, that's, you know, be my guest. The thing sometimes mm-hmm. that happens when you interact with these kinds of people is that you actually lose a lot of your agency because this person only sees you as an object, as a plaything, as mm-hmm. a um, one time when I first started really thinking about these things, someone called me, you know, you are probably that white boy's flavor of the month. Mm-hmm. And it was hard, you know, it was hard yeah. to think about that, to really grapple with that possibility. <laughs> so very often that, that's a rice queen. A dairy queen, on the other hand, is often the flip side of that, right? Mm-hmm. In that dairy being the stand-in for whiteness, you know, milk. Like mm-hmm. I personally am lactose intolerant, so I should be <laughs> listening to my body. <laughs> But part of the narrative of the chapter called Rice Queens, Dairy Queens is Mm. that as I was learning to critique the men that I was seeing and dating and having sex with, starting to understand the possibility that maybe these men were in fact Rice Queens, I also then started to understand, oh, fuck, maybe I'm a Dairy Queen. Mm. Maybe I've only dated white men for a particular reason. I kind of wrote it off, right, as maybe in my very early 20s, in my late teens, being like, well, I've only really dated white men or kissed white boys or slept with white guys because I'm in a very white space. You know, I went to college on, um, at Vassar, Mm -hmm. I went to college in, you know, the Northeast. And I was surrounded by all of these intelligent, good-looking white boys, but there were also good-looking, intelligent brown boys who looked like me, good-looking, mm-hmm. intelligent black boys. But um, I only went for the white, you know, the whiteies. 
And I had to really think about what kind of sexual education did I experience that I am only thinking of, you know, a Mr. Jones, a Mr. Ford, a Mr. Hughes, rather than mm-hmm. a, uh, you know, a Mr. Chan or a Mr. Gomez, you know? Mm-hmm. So it's, it was really one of my favorite chapters in the book to write because, and it was something that stayed in the book in every stage of its evolution. There was always mm-hmm. going to be a chapter about this kind of colonialized, internal, colonialized resi- desire, racist love. And so I think it was one of the really key parts of the book that I think illuminates a lot of the other later chapters because you kind of have that as like, a foundation, like now you've been kind of introduced to the concept and we can kind of go deeper into these ideas, uh, Mm. as the book progresses. Yeah. I mean, I, I was blown away by, by that chapter, uh, specifically because it deals with internalized racism in, in a way that I haven't seen written about almost where I was like, oh my God, because as you said, you kind of realize, wait, or you have this moment where you're like, wait, I actually am the Dairy Queen. You further, you know, explore why is that the case? One of the dimensions of racism that a lot of people don't talk about is internalized racism. And so how did you begin to explore that by thinking it through how it played out and manifested in your romantic relationships but then also how it was impacted or shaped by the, the history of the Philippines, of you know, the colonial history of the Philippines. One of the main themes that I always wanted to keep in the book was the relationships, mm-hmm. right? the sex, that kind of romantic, very intimate, personal, those kinds of contexts. Because I think in those situations, that's when we show the people we love most, the people we want to love, we show ourselves ultimately at the end of the day, what we want. And I think what we want and what we desire says a lot about the ways that we think and the ways that we've been educated in whatever societies and communities that we live in. So for me, by thinking about my sexual and romantic relationships with men, particularly white men, it started to really open up and give me more access into other parts of my my racial identity, my sexual identity, and how they were very intricately linked. My immigrant identity also very intricately linked with everything else. And once I started doing more research on the social, historical, critical side of the book, thinking really more about my origins as a national-born Filipino, someone who became an American citizen and is now a dual citizen, thinking about my own journey in the context of the larger Philippine-American, you know, relationship over centuries. And Philippines, the relationship between Spain and the Philippines as well, having been a colony for, you know, close to uh, 300 years. It became really more and more apparent to me, thinking about these two kind of big ideas sex and colonialism at the same time, it, the connections between the two were so clear to me by the end of like writing the book, because mm-hmm. in a relationship, you very often, I think some of us can fall into the trap of thinking that another person can save me, right? We often think of 
when I find my soulmate, I will be a complete person. I will be redeemed. I will feel finally uh, like I have succeeded. And when we think of colonial relations, particularly I'll speak specifically about America, the United States and the Philippines in relationship to emancipation from Spain. You know, it, Spain was fought America for the Philippines. And then so the U.S. ostensibly said that, oh, we'll join forces with you to the Philippines. We'll join forces with you to, you know, expel Spain from Asia. Mm. But ultimately they did that because they wanted their own colonial presence in the Pacific. Mm -hmm. And, you know, obviously, you know, the Philippine rebels were shocked and, you know, how could you do this? But at the same time, like it's a two-way street. There were active participants in all of these negotiations. And part, I think, sometimes of what happens in colonialism is you can sometimes continue to submit. You can continue to accept sometimes the superiority of another culture over yours. And I think that's very much how white American imperialism works and still works mm -hmm. to this day, wherein, you know, we still tell people, uh, well, I don't, but white America will still tell people, you know, you're in America, speak our language, for example. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of how a white presence, a white body can dominate a brown or a darker skinned body by asserting their superiority without question. And so eventually over time, the submissive quote unquote party ultimately kind of falls prey to that and starts to believe that themselves. And mm -hmm. so after, imagine the Philippines as, a, as a, an archipelago, as a collected archipelago, as a territory has been the subject of, has been a colony for almost half a millennium. Mm -hmm. And so now we're so it's a part of the cultural conversations that we have in the Philippines now are like, there's so much brain drain. People leave the country to, for other quote unquote greener pastures in the U S mm -hmm. or in Europe or wherever, mm -hmm. because the culture at home still places Westernization above so many other things, places whiteness over everything else. When you just think about, the celebrity culture that we have in the Philippines, everyone who's mestiza or mestizo is going to be immediately more attractive or conventionally attractive than someone who has darker skin or, or curlier hair um, or a flatter nose. So all of this is a long-winded answer to think about it. And ultimately what I want to say is that it's all so connected. And I think that was something mm -hmm. that I didn't want to shy away from in the book, that things like desire and appearance and sex and power and colonialism and this very long history of being told to fit into a Western scope of, of society has been something that the Philippine diaspora has had to contend with for so many, so many years. And this was my way of exploring it through my own personal journey as a queer brown immigrant in the state specifically. Mm. I mean, you say that people have left the Philippines because yeah. the history, the colonial history of the Philippines creates a, a Western dominance. Um, mm. But in leaving the Philippines though, you know, specifically immigrating to the U S 
there still is assimilation and acculturation that needs to happen um, in order for someone to feel like maybe they belong. Um, mm-hmm. But I think fundamentally it's about survival. Um, yes. So, I mean, how how do you reconcile that? You know, coming coming to the U.S., leaving the Philippines because it's like this colonial history is so oppressive, but then coming to the U.S., it's like, fuck, I'm actually supposed to to uh, assimilate. Um, it's like... Of so much I mean, of what makes me me, right? Like I talk about that too in the book where I felt like to, literally to use your words, to assimilate in the States, I feel like I had to really aspire to whiteness and like really mm-hmm. try to behave in a white manner. Like I literally dress like, you know, a Ralph Lauren, Tommy Hilfiger, little boy, um, like trying to, you know, pretend that he was, you know, popping his collars and anyway. Um, yeah. But to that point, right. I think I also want to just briefly bring up too, like the idea mm-hmm. as well that there are, are people who immigrate away from these brown countries, right? Is because of colonialism, because Western powers have pillaged our countries for its wealth and resources for so many years that they're not third world countries or developing countries. They are countries that quote unquote first world countries stole from. Mm. So as a result, why are you blaming us coming to your country when you have stripped my country of resources? Mm. So all of that to say, and then when we come here, we're then made to change ourselves to really feel embarrassed for, you know, bringing fish and rice to the cafeteria in middle school. Like, Mm -hmm. yeah, I definitely had those lunchbox moments and, um, for sure. Yeah. And, but to your point, like it is a matter of survival and, you know, you just kind of have to escape unscathed sometimes in order to like, just see another day. Mm. Um, I talk about that a lot in the book and I, and that was kind of my own MO when I was growing up. It was, you know, don't rock the boat too much. Uh, don't resist, like take the path of least resistance. Don't bite the hand that feeds you all of those metaphors that rely on complicity towards a broken system. And Mm. now I think, in I was writing the book in 2019 predominantly, and then now having converse, had conversations in 2020 and now in 2021 about how systems have failed us, or perhaps that systems were never meant to help us. And rather than admonishing or advocating for specific personal and individual behaviors. I think more and more there's now a consciousness and a growing dialogue about it's not mm-hmm. just what we can do for ourselves as individuals or on interpersonal levels. We need to think about things structurally and systematically, like mm-hmm. what are the man-made concepts and institutions that we live in that make it so that we can't even get a $15 an hour Mm, bill for minimum wage passed in a democratic majority. Like Mm. I think we are now more happy to talk about how society, American society sometimes feels like a failed experiment. Yeah. And there are so many ways that we can do something better or tear it apart and build something much more beautiful in its place. But 
it's not something that we can do solely on our own. So I think my intent with the book was to kind of move the conversation a little bit in that direction while also still really remaining grounded in the personal work that I am currently doing. You know, it's never, it never ends for any of us. This kind of decolonization, this learning how to be unlearning of racism. The self-exploration and the reflection of the personal, of your, of the lived experience that helps bring to light, you know, the systemic injustices or the oppressive systems that shape the mindsets, uh, shape our mindsets and have uh, created misbeliefs Mm. about who we are. um, uh, But we're never really uh, doing that on our own. That's shaped by the systems that create and reify these, these images that continue to oppress all of us. Um, So how can people really interrogate themselves to the extent that they can now see that actually I'm just a part of this, the system and I'm just complicit in this. Ah. There's no magic moment, right? There's no like Buddha sitting under the tree, like achieving sudden enlightenment. I'm still learning every day more and more about my own implicit biases, about my own internalized everything, femphobia, even my own internalized xenophobia. Mm-hmm. But for me, definitely in writing during while I was writing the book, so much of my ideas and convictions and arguments developed in conversation with the people I loved most with my mom while I was talking to her, even though it was mostly me doing a lot of the educating um, and with some of my more, um, I would say, radical friends. You know, I learned so much from them and and, and how I learned what what my own progressiveness looks like. And in talking to them, I learned so much about my ideas of marriage, about my ideas of, you know, um, class, you know, things, things like that. I, so many of these conversations with other people doing the same work can really help you, you know, inch by inch. It's such a slow process, uh, to come more to terms about your own, complicities about the actions that you can take the resistance that is within your that you can do that you can do safely i think a lot about Mm -hmm. last summer where i was doing a lot of actions lately um when covid numbers were pretty low in new york comparatively it's fascinating i looked it up recently Mm -hmm. like at one point in august only 250 new cases for the day at one point and yeah. then now, I think people kept saying like New York City's doing such a great job. I, I remember. Yeah, like, it felt like we were yeah. the safest place in the country at a certain point. And then all of a sudden the holidays and cold weather hit. So, but that was something that was already in the cards and not a lot of people listened. Mm-hmm. And indoor restaurants were opening indoor dining. Um, and I think about that period of time where I was, you know, doing um, actions, I was donating, I was marching when I could. And I remember one of the guys, uh, a guy I was seeing at the time, uh, he was white, obviously. (laughs) And, but he was very thoughtful. He was like, okay, Mm -hmm. I'm gonna, you know, use my body as a shield. Um, And there was, uh, he was at a protest once that got, that ran, had a run in with police. And he had had some training and was able to 
you know, really used his body to protect mm. those more vulnerable than him. He, he being mm. a cis white man, um, you know, protecting other, you know, uh, trans bodies and brown bodies and black bodies that were also in the same space with him, you know, marching for the same cause. I thought that was a really thoughtful example of like, oh, I see, that's what someone with his privileges can do to mm. kind of support the cause. For me, I have to figure out what I can do. Um, now, more lately, like, you know, obviously, we're social gatherings in any kind of regard are very risky. So more, more lately in the past couple of months, I've been thinking about where's my money going and where are my donations going? Um, but you know, that, that's for me, that's what my own kind of, so all of that to say, right? Like you work with others in all regards in your own personal journey. Um, you might also help others. Like I think my mom, I was able to push, to push her towards some of the more, <laughs> To, to some more to more understanding i think when we talk with our parents it can feel very different yeah. you know because there's a lot of other baggage tied up in that but i think you do mm. it with other people and i don't think it's just something that you do alone sitting in your room thinking about the injustices that we have for example in our carceral systems um mm. yeah and i think the less scared that we get about talking about these really hard, tricky things and being able to say, yeah. no, I don't know yet, but we can talk yeah. about it and learn more. I think a conversation that you and I are having, you know, more mm -hmm. people need to be talking like this and knowing that it's not about fighting or not trying to start an argument. It's just really about pushing each other to grow, I think. Um, yeah. But I think this got away from me a little bit. But yeah, I mean, I'm always going to advocate for like, talking to your friends, talking to other people doing the work, talking to people who know more than you, because it's only going to help. Yeah. I mean, you've even said, you know, don't be afraid to sort of like figure yourself out, like publicly, oh, yeah. like, and, um, I guess, I mean, we're all still trying to figure ourselves out, but when do you, or how do you decide to let other people into your process of figuring yourself out? When do you, I mean, I'm just thinking about for myself, like coming out, there was such an internal and like heady process for me. And I, I didn't let people in, you know, until very late in, into my life. But yeah, how do you, how do you make a decision or how do you make decisions about letting people into your, to your self-exploration? I love that you brought that up, Jeffrey, because I think coming out is so personal, right? And I think we talk a lot about coming out when it's safe, coming out when it's right, coming out when you feel supported. And I think some of those kind of best practices or rules of thumb are something we can bring in more broadly because so much of it does feel like I can only talk about certain things when I feel safe, right? And mm -hmm. yeah, for most folks, I think that should be you know, something to, that's a question you ask yourself. That should be on the checklist. Like talking about this with certain people, do I feel safe? Do I feel like mm. I will be heard? Or at least these people will try to listen in good faith. Um, because I think so often we find ourselves in situations where we kind of let things slide because the person that we're holding space with isn't, isn't going to take it well maybe, or... yeah you feel like sometimes, you know what, I'm not going to change their mind and I'm not going to waste my energy on X, Y, and Z trying to convince them otherwise. Um, mm. 
But in terms of like getting vulnerable and you mentioned like, yeah. you know, processing things publicly. I mean, the book is very much that like I, mm. you know, I have my own arguments and convictions in the book that I, you know, put onto paper and sold to a publisher. And like now it's a, you know, Barnes and Noble and wherever. Um, mm-hmm. But I think one of my core beliefs is that we shouldn't be afraid to be processing things in public with other people, but it is so hard, right? Uh, Cause that's essentially what I've done with the book. Like things in there are still in progress. Things in there are still very young. It was a very, it's a very young book. I wrote it when I was 28. Um, mm. And, and like what I'm turning 30 this year. Haha. <laughs> um, yes. But uh, love it. On a, like a more personal, like casual note, I, I personally very much default to like, I wonder what other people think about this. You know, I'm always yeah. curious about like, I had this idea. Do people go through this experience as well? I mean, I remember one of the, I think something that actually was very much a seed for the book. One of the chapters in the book was I was once thinking about like, Oh my God, like I can't have like a fucking gay guy friend and just be friends with them platonically without me fucking falling in love with him and him rejecting me. Yeah. And this was like maybe what 2017 or something. And obviously I was probably just like getting over some kind of boy or whatever, but I tweeted it Mm. and I was like, am I the only one who feels this way? It was one of the Mm. most like thoughtful and engaging sort of reply section on my Twitter. Like so many people Mm. were like, Oh my God, same, but also this and also that one of my favorite takeaways from that. And I had already been thinking about this in a certain way, but someone said, I mean, isn't that just the queer agenda regardless of gender that like, when you look at someone, (laughs) is it the question always is going to be, do I want to be them or do I want to fuck them? Yeah. You know? <laughs> yeah. So it's... Yeah, that's one of my favorite things that you say in the book, actually. Oh, yes. The Macy's underwear aisle. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so it's... Uh, and then it made it into the book. So it was one of those things that I know for me, my, my experience has been that when I share, people thoughts... Thoughts. Sorry, it's my little brother, dude. I'm like at home with my oh, little brother is like singing. Oh, obviously you are in a Filipino household. <laughs> we were singing karaoke. Oh, the magic sing. Lots of Adele. But Very good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Ignore him. <laughs> no, no, please. It's fine. Um, but yeah, all of that to say, like, I have always found that when I share, people engage well. And, you know, we build uh, conversation and dialogue. And then it helps me find some framework or some place to start mm. with the next thing that I'm writing. It's curious how it happens that way. Like of all the things that you say or put out into the world, does it still surprise you what people pick up on or resonate with most? That's a great question. I think so this, these days, maybe less so just because the book has been out for, you know, almost a year now. Mm-hmm. So right now I'm currently writing this column at Catapult about grieving my mother. She passed away last summer, um, 11 days after. It's a beautiful, beautiful essay. Thank you. Um, yeah. So I just published the second one. It was about like grieving mom and video games. And my first one was about uh, moving into my new apartment. And then my next one's going to be about baking and my mother. And so mm-hmm. I have been talking about these things broadly and generally uh, piecemeal on Twitter. And 
once I started putting them together in essays, so the apartment-ish essay um, last month and or two months ago, and then the one about video games last month, then things started surprising me because now we're kind of in this other kind of realm of emotional conversation because obviously groom is very much about like I expected it to speak to queer folks, to Asian folks, to people of color, mm-hmm. to immigrants. Um, and so I was kind of like, kind of could expect what like what will hit with people. And then now it's a little bit more new to me. Obviously, my mom's only been dead for about nine months and it's all very new. The grief is very fresh and I'm very new to a grief of this magnitude. So now when people email me and send me kind, lovely notes, you know, they'll say, oh, my father's uh, passed. My father passed away eight years ago or my mother also passed away just last year. You know, whoever it may be. It always surprises me what p- people do pick up on. Someone was saying also that like I did feel like uh, someone who was saying I now live in the house where my mother died. And so t- told me a little bit about their experience so far. And it was really fascinating to see how our, our experiences differed, but how some of our emotional, the things that we're feeling, it kind of resonated with each other. So it's it's really interesting now to be putting work out and knowing that I'll probably make my next book and base it on all of this and having other people be really a part of this conversation and really strangers helping me figure out some of the heavier and most difficult things that, you know, I'm going through right now. It's really fascinating, but I've been just so, it's surprising. Yes. To answer your question. And also just so reassuring people have been so, 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 so kind. It's, I, 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 I was so welcome it and it's only given me more conviction to be writing about, you know, my grief fresh as it is, mm. because I think very often when we look at people who write about grief or loss, there's a great gap of time from the sort of inciting incident and then the mm. publication of X of a book or, or a movie or a TV show, whatever the case may be. And so, but it was really important to me to write about it while it was happening because it was my own way of kind of chronicling things. And it's funny, like Mm. on a lighter note, like I am not the best kind of journaler. I don't keep a diary very well. I try and I fail. Um, But me writing notes like, oh, this is going to be in this essay, this is going to be in that essay. And like knowing that there's like, a check at the end of the day once I publish that essay. It's like, it's a really Mm. nice motivator to like write down my notes about like, oh yeah, I woke up crying the other day. Great. My, you know, X Mm. dollars is coming in next month for this. (laughs) I want to say, I'm sorry for your loss. And like, I'm just going to share this with you in in the interest of like exploring yourself, like publicly, but (laughs) But yeah, I'm actually home right now in, in California because um, my grandmother passed a couple weeks ago. Oh, Jeffrey, I'm sorry. She passed due to COVID and um, oh. I, I flew home right away from Boston and your essay really helped me. What I'm finding to be super interesting and also troubling um, mm. at the same time about what's going on in my life right now is that my family 
wants to grieve together. Mm. Um, and so much of what grieving means, at least to me, is being in community with people who want to celebrate the memory and the life of the person who passed away. But we can't do that, you know, because we're, we're in isolation, you know, and there's so much coordination because it's like, well, did you get tested? Like, are you, you know, are your test results back? Like, where have you been? Like, who have you been hanging out with? You know, and we just want to be together and just fucking have like, you know, pancit and adobo, like in my mom's kitchen, you know, yeah. with, with everyone. And, and I'm still trying to make sense of this whole time. How have you activated memories of your mom um, and how have you been able to use your writing to process memories um, of her and also memorialize what she meant to you? Yeah. Activating the memories is interesting because so currently my process lately of writing about mom has been that I investigate my grief through the lenses of other seemingly mundane things, moving into an apartment, video games, Nexus baking. And I was so close with my mother, or am, am. I am so close with my mother, present tense, mm. that I always feel like, I, or I would hope, right, that, I, that I, I would know what she would say about X, Y, and Z or that she has been such an integral part of my life that there's no part of it that she didn't touch. When I think about video games, I think about, you know, my mom's limitation on my Game Boy Color when I was growing up in the Philippines. Like, uh, a Game Boy, a no Game Boy past, you know, bedtime. Or like, yes, you can bring it on a field trip. Um, or, okay, we'll go to the mall and you can get a new game, but your budget is 2,000 pesos, whatever. Or if it's about baking, which I'm very much in the throes of right now because I'm writing this draft, is that, you know, I got a KitchenAid stand mixer and I was like, oh my God, I finally have the space in the new place. It's on sale. Let me get one. I don't know any fucking recipes. Well, except for one, I have mom's recipe mm -hmm. for cookies. So like, what does that mean to me? Like... And so kind of everything mm -hmm. unfolds from there. And mm -hmm. I have been very lucky in that mm -hmm. I can access her in those ways from, from the most disparate things. Like I, I, I see her everywhere and I'm, it's a blessing and a curse, mm -hmm. certainly. Um, <laughs> yeah. And I'm writing it down now while I still can. I th so when in the in last summer, well, it was very very fresh. I was reading a bunch of other grief books, mm -hmm. um, like C.S. Lewis has a book on grief. Um, one of my favorite French philosophers and semioticians, um, Roland Bart, has a book on grieving his mother. Um, he <laughs> died not long after she did. Um, and he, mm. oh man, you know, you talk about gay men loving their mothers. Like that is one oh, gay wow. man who loved his mom. And yeah. so he was writing, and so speaking of Bart mom. in particular, he has this, you know, it's mostly notes. He wrote notes to 
Um, I'll find like little index cards. Um, actually, they're not even index cards. They're like cut up pieces of paper, like quartered from like, you know, anyway. <laughs> <laughs> I love the guy. And like, I'm thinking of doing one essay about mm-hmm. him and mom, actually, his grief and my grief. And so he was writing all of these notes and talking about who he saw that day, how we felt that day, living in the house where his mom died. Mm. And at one point he makes a note about how like, I'm already forgetting mm. her voice. How, like essentially the, I, the emotion being like, how the mm. fuck can I forget her voice? Like, wow, that's fucking rude. What is happening? And I, I started to feel that a little bit yeah. too. And, you know, we now in our present day have the privilege of things like videos and like, you know, more easily reproduce, uh, rep- um, pictures you can more easily reproduce. Yeah. And I keep listening to my grandmother's voicemails. There actually. you go. So yeah, we have yeah, that technology yeah. of like, we literally have our loved ones archived and it's so mm-hmm. easy for our, it's available to us at our fingertips. He didn't have that. Bart didn't have that. And so he, but even then I'm still kind of like, I, I do keep watching this um, small video of mom and she doesn't speak much in it, but like, it's, it's just incredible hearing her voice, um, you know, before the cancer, you know, like that, mm. you know, illness really changes a body and changes a human. And anyway, all of that to say, I am writing, you know, and I am accessing these memories and, you know, putting mm. them to paper to, to, to webpage while I can before it all, you know, kind of gets too buried under the trauma. Like last night, mm. literally just last night, I read an essay that I published in maybe July about mom. And I didn't remember really writing a lot of those words, but I remember those words coming Mm. so easily to me at the moment when I was writing it last Mm. year. But then now last night at like, what is it? March 4th, 2021. I I was pleasantly surprised by some of the things that I was able to write down because I didn't remember those feelings or I have moved maybe passed beyond those feelings or those feelings mm-hmm. have evolved maybe, but it was just so helpful and reassuring that like I was able in that moment to keep a little bit of like a time capsule of yeah. what that, you know, that window of my grief was like. So yeah, mm-hmm. I, I feel very privileged and very blessed that this is kind of the work that I do. And this is the creative work that does fulfill me and does help me on a personal level, even though it is difficult. Um, and I know that, you know, we all grieve in our own different ways and I'm glad to have found something that helps me personally. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks so much for sharing that. No, thank you for um, sharing. I'll too. definitely take that with me day to day. Um, uh, as we wrap up here, um, <laughs> awkward trying to know. Uh, no, I, I really appreciate, uh, your kindness and just, uh, connecting and helping me make sense of where I'm at right now in the process. And it's so important to, while her memory is so fresh, um, and while I'm in this stage to, to write and to, yeah. to express and to, to remember also where I'm at right now too. And um, so I appreciate you sharing those words. Um, Yeah, if I may too, um, you might be more ready than I am for this part because you're home. But like for me, I haven't seen any family member, like, you know, biological family member. I have my chosen family, but like Mm. my family of origin, I haven't seen anybody 
um, since January of 2020, since they're all in Manila and I'm in Brooklyn mm. and I can't travel oh, wow. because of COVID. So yeah. one thing that I know I want to do is talk to other people, talk to mm. her siblings, talk to her best friends, talk to my dad more often, really my stepdad. Mm. And, mm. you know, to, for more stories about her. I mean, my stepdad and I talk often about mom um, but, you know, other folks like my ninangs and my titas, you know, like mm. her, like chosen sisters. Like, I'd love to hear their stories about her, like to have some access to memories that I don't have That's and right. to really paint a fuller picture of my mother. Who was she beyond just my mother? And so I bring it up because I feel like you would, you know, while you're home, I think it, it's like just kind of it's it's what we do as Filipinos. Yeah. We talk, we tell stories yeah. about the people who are no longer with us and those that we love. And so I think yeah. it's, just, it's it would be an organic step. And I'm so grateful and you know happy that you get to have that right now. That you are home with, you know your your brother was it who was singing in the background? Yeah, <laughs> literally just been like singing every day. But yeah, yeah singing in the background. It's what your Lola would want. My last and final question, I guess, to you is what's your, uh, what's your adobo recipe? I've, I've seen that you're like yes. really going hard on this and in, on Instagram. I'm yes. like, dude, your stories have been really good. <laughs> yeah, so part of my pivot to lifestyle content has been <laughs> doing more baking and food content for my Instagram. So, um, I, to get my, uh, to get more baking recipes, um, I subscribe to the Times cooking kind of section. So that's the only part of the Times that I pay for. <laughs> Is it the coconut milk one? You, yes, yes, it's okay. by Angela okay. Dimayuga, yeah, okay. who I believe still runs uh, No Bar um, at the Standard in New York City. Um, but Angela is amazing. She's a queer um, Filipinx um, chef, and. So her adobo, her adobo recipe is what I currently use. Mm. Um, I only cook for myself, obviously, since I live alone, but her, her adobo is like, um, probably feeds like six or so. Um, so I reduce, so my first time making it, I, I halved the entire recipe. So like where it called for one cup of soy sauce, I used a half cup. Mm. Um, because I also used half the amount of chicken that she called for. Yeah. But then the first time I made it, I was like, this is good, but I feel like it could be more intense. So I'm, when I made uh. it most recently, I uh, kept all of the proportions, all of the sort of measurements, but still just, re just reduced the chicken. So I used the full cup of vinegar, mm. a full cup of coconut milk, you know? So, and that was just so much more flavorful, so much more intense. It was amazing. Um, yeah, it's really wonderful to be able to do that for myself now. I feel like the thing that is interesting for me, it then brings up all of these other sort of familial questions that I have, which is like, why did no one ever really teach me how to cook? Mm. Like no, no one ever really, mom never really taught me how to bake. I've had to learn how to bake on my own. Mm. So like what, what this kind of this is a way where I am a little bit at a distance from other Filipino families where, oh yes, my Lola's recipe for embutido has been in my family for ages, you know? And it's like, I didn't fucking get that. Like I, my mom didn't really cook. My mom baked. But like when we moved to Vegas, when I was 11, I was making, you know, pasta for her after she came home from work. Like she never taught me. 
So mm-hmm. like, it's interesting now yeah. to like, oh, interesting. Like there are parts of my upbringing in my youth that are actually not that not to say that that's thorny, but mm-hmm. you know, like it's not such, it's not so traumatic that I cooked for my mom because she didn't know how to cook. Yeah. But well, I guess, well, we'll unpack that in therapy, not in a podcast. But, <laughs> um, but it was interesting. It was like, oh, okay. Like there is some, okay. I'm accessing parts of my memory that I haven't really gone mm-hmm. into in a while. So, because so much, I think, yeah. I mean, so you're much, like teaching for, yourself this recipe and then it's yeah. activating these memories of family and home. It's very weird. Yeah. And I, I think too, because food is so sensory, mm-hmm. right? Taste, mm-hmm. smell, touch, um, mm. sight, you know, when you see a meal. You, yeah. And I mean, I think about this too, where it's like one of my first trips to Paris, I went to a restaurant that was owned by two sisters, one who ran the kitchen and one who ran the front of house. Mm, cool. And they came from a Filipino, Russian, French background. So there were like eight, there was, East Asian and Southeast Asian inspired ingredients and flavors in their menu. And then I had something, now I can't remember the meal, but it's somewhere on my Instagram, but I had a dish and the way it tasted was, reminded me so much of the Philippines. It was wild. Cause wild. I was like, I'm in Paris with one of my best friends and I've always dreamed of coming here and I'm an immigrant from the States, but I was born in the Philippines. And how does this still all connect? And I I feel Mm. it all. It was one of those weird moments where I was like, I don't feel so disparate, you know, like Mm. all parts of me don't feel disconnected. It it was such a gift to feel like I am exactly where I should be. Yeah. And it, it was really cool to be, to have that feeling and that can be inspired by so many other things, but like to have it be inspired by food, which, yeah. you know, is so central to like our experiences as Filipino people. It's so, to, to almost like a stereotypical degree, but totally. you can't knock the truth. You can't <laughs> knock the truth. I mean, what vinegar are you using by the way? Angela suggests that you use a <laughs> coconut vinegar for her uh. recipe, but I did not find coconut vinegar where I grocery shop. So I use a rice vinegar. So I am looking Love. forward to Same. when I get, my yeah. favorite. so I'm looking yeah. forward to be able to using, uh, to, to use a coconut vinegar for this. She uses coconut oil and then coconut milk. And then the third coconut is the vinegar, but I wonder what that does. I'd, I'd be very excited to see. Matt Ortile, just thank you so much, man. Like, this, thank you so much. Yeah. Also ap- yeah. apologies to your listeners. I've been drinking a glass of wine the entire time. I know. I know. It's awesome. In fact, <laughs> I, I feel so like out of place, not having my own glass of wine. No, I am an Ortile and this is my heritage. <laughs> <laughs> thank you so, so much. Yeah. I really thank appreciate you, your time. Yeah. My pleasure. Uh, Take care. My condolences again to your family. Okay. Thanks so much, dude. Appreciate you. Bye.